Hello and welcome to the Damn Fine Life podcast with Rinku Madan. I'm Gaurav Kapoor and I am here to introduce this show which is a unique and exclusive take on luxury hospitality from across the globe. Now I am fascinated by luxury hospitality just as much as you are, which is why I'm super excited about this show because it's not just about the business of hospitality, but it's also about stories, journeys, histories, insights, a peek behind the curtain, if you may. from the world of luxury hospitality so let's dive straight in powered by sonever resorts and residences marquesi di barolo wines and the lila palaces hotels and resorts brought to you by dan hotels israel chalet hotels limited hotel kempinski indonesia fratelli wines and taf the holistic wellness center in partnership with our season partners postcard hotels a collection of intimate and bespoke luxury hotels hidden in holiday destinations across india and the world the postcard hotels combine luxury with simplicity helping you retreat to a life that is luxurious simple unhurried and filled with rich discoveries easy diner the one stop platform for the most enjoyable authentic and friction free table booking experience instant confirmations and amazing deals on food and beverage in over 150 cities in india and now in dubai too jet hq the world's most trusted air craft sales with deep industry knowledge real time data and market analysis by dedicated professionals an aircraft brokerage company with headquarters in the united states jet hq's experience and international expertise allow them to serve you 24/7 across the globe in almost every time zone a one stop solution for sale and purchase of pre-owned aircrafts times are always special and we begin our first season of our very special podcast today with a very special guest Mr Philip Boyne CEO Forbes Travel Guide Mr Boyne has had a very illustrious career spanning more than 3 decades in the world of luxury hospitality from working as chef with Michelin star chef Joel Robuchon to now owning the position of CEO in one of the most premium platforms for luxury hospitality the Forbes Travel Guide Philip Boyne welcome to the show Thank you Rinku it's an absolute pleasure to be here Before I start I want my listeners to know that Mr Boyne sitting across me is looking very very dapper and he has this very interesting lapel pin on his suit What is this pin Mr Boyne Well I discovered that in Florence in Italy there is a lady who set up a company called Ma Boutonniere and uh, basically you wear this instead of a pocket handkerchief and uh, apparently from what she told me in the old days italian ladies used to use uh, worn ties and make them into that sort of rosette to wear on their lapel which if you go to italy there is a couple of hotels in florence that offer that to their vips and what is on the other lapel i see a five star lapel pin what is that Exactly. That is the five-star Forbes pin. So once a hotel has earned the five-star recognition, 
then we send those pins to the hotels. And in many of those hotels, all the employees are wearing these pins. And I must say with lots of proud. Absolutely. I'm definitely sure that this is such a matter of pride to be awarded a five star by Forbes. So, Mr. Boyne, how would Philip Boyne describe himself? That is not very complicated, uh, Rinku. I think I'm a simple person. I started from the very bottom. So when I was 18, obviously school was not for me. We knew that very quickly. And I started as a commie chef when I was 18 years old. So I've worked my way up through the ranks. And what you learn from that is two things. First, humility. And second, and the most important, is that every single team member in an operation, and it doesn't matter if it's a restaurant or a spa or a hotel, every single team member is incredibly important. Without a team, you cannot achieve anything. So I would say self-made, hardworking, and let's not forget there's always a very big doses of luck involved. Anybody that says he made it all on his own merit, I have my doubts believing him because I know from experience you also have to be in the right place at the right time. But obviously you need to work hard. Yes, absolutely agree with this. That luck, it's very important to have luck on your side as well. Definitely. I just mentioned that your luxury hospitality career spans more than three decades from countries like you have been to countries like Bora Bora and then to Peru. So much of experience, so much of travel. Tell us some of your favorite stories. Well, first of all, we know that hospitality is the most exciting and satisfactory factory uh, industry in the world, right? It gives you many, many opportunities. So like I already said, I started as a commis chef in Belgian restaurants. I then went on to work in Michelin star restaurants in Belgium and to train, of course. And then I worked my way up through the ranks and I knew straight away that hospitality was my thing, right? It was going to be my future and I had definitely found what I loved. So you said earlier very kindly that I worked for Robuchon. It wasn't quite working. It was an assignment. It was an internship at Robuchon. And in those days, and also for Marc Meno, both of them were three-star Michelin. In those days, we used to do those internships free of charge because we worked hard, long hours, but we also knew that to gain the experience was the most important thing. And obviously, Rebouchon and Marc Meno were very important names to have on your CV. And we did that free of charge because we knew that the money would come down somewhere along the line, right? But to earn money, you need to gain the experience. And um, obviously, today's new generations and younger generations are not always of the same opinion. But uh, we'll come to that a little bit later. But what I must say, the kitchen was a wonderful time. I mean, we worked very hard in those days. We did split shifts every single day. Uh, we worked uh, holidays, we worked bank holidays, we worked weekends, etc. But I must say, there is nothing more satisfactory than having done a busy, hectic, but successful restaurant service. I mean, it's a wonderful feeling. After you've worked hard from 7 to 11 or 11.30, everybody's happy, everybody goes home. It is a great feeling. So we were incredibly, we were incredibly proud of our industry, but also of the quality we produced. So after my kitchen career, I moved into food and beverage. And my first job in food and beverage was in Turkey, in Antalya. 
And this was the time when the first Gulf War broke out. And um, obviously that was already straight away a very difficult moment because our occupancy when the Gulf War broke out, our occupancy dropped from 95% to zero in one day. And we had to let 450 team members go, unfortunately. So that was one of the most painful things because I can assure you, Turkey is an amazing country and the people are truly welcoming, incredibly friendly, willing to learn and very service-minded. So that was a tough one. So in 1992, we moved to Moscow in Russia. And I remember very well, we went from 35 degrees centigrade to minus 15. So that was quite a shock to the system. But at the same time, what an adventure. It was just after Perestroika, Gorbachev was still the president. The transition from communism was in full swing. And obviously the mafia families were fighting for influence. The privatization of the government assets and the international interests made sure that we had excellent occupancies and very high average rates already then in 92 when we opened the Palace Hotel in Moscow. The Russians are a very closed and guarded society and we can imagine why. So it is very hard to get their trust. But I can assure you once you have their trust, it is for life. And we went, we spent five years there. So we left in 97. And we still have some incredible Russian friends that we usually once every two years or so go on holiday with. Now, when I spoke about the mafia, the mafia also meant that every one of the hotels was paying protection money, depending on the family you were protected by. So we pay 3% of revenue for protection money. I must say we were lucky because we had a wholesale discount because we had six hotels with Marco Polo hotels, six hotels in the ex-USSR all protected by the same family. And obviously we had a discount. The other hotels were paying between five and 7%. Okay, so we had a purchasing manager in the hotel in those days, and we knew that she was taking some backhanders, if you know what I mean, from suppliers. So basically one day I decided call all the, all the suppliers in my office. And let's not forget in those days, there was only two or three luxury hotels in Moscow. There wasn't even in 92 a Western supermarket there. So it was quite a difficult situation. If you went to a Russian shop to buy goods, today they would have butter, tomorrow they wouldn't. They would have milk today, tomorrow they wouldn't. You had to uh, queue three times to buy product. So it was quite a, a challenging time in those days. And I called all the suppliers in my office and I said, listen, here is, here is the thing. I know you're paying backhanders to a purchasing manager. So you have two choices. Or you let me know how much you paid her, when you paid her, etc. Or, and then you can continue to be a supplier for the hotel as long as you give us the discount, the discount to the hotel and not to the purchasing manager. Uh, or we have to let you go and uh, you are no longer a supplier. And obviously they needed the business. So about 70% of them came clean. They gave me all the details I needed. So I built a file and we fired the purchasing manager. The same day that I fired her, I get a call from my owner in Vienna and says, Philip, I want you to come to Vienna tonight and meet with Mr. Sanakitze. Now, Mr. Sanakitze was the godfather of the mafia family. So I arrive, I still remember the presidential suite of the Marriott in Vienna. I get welcomed by two huge uh, bodyguards from Sanakitze, probably 
a little intimidation tactic. And then, of course, we went through the normal Russian thing, vodka, smoked salmon, caviar, champagne, before we finally got down to business. So then Mr. Sanikitsa said, so Philip, you um, fired the purchasing manager this morning. I said, yes, Mr. Sanikitsa. And I was already reaching for my file because, of course, I had it with me. And he said, no, 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 no need. I need to explain something to me, to you. He says, you pay us 3% of revenue, you pay us to protect you, and you pay us to deal with all the difficulties that you encounter in your hotel. One thing I want you to understand, we Georgians, and he was from Georgia, we Georgians, if I lose a million dollars tomorrow, it's not a major thing because I can always make money. But if I lose my face in front of my friends and family, that is the worst thing that can ever happen to me. And by the way, the purchasing manager was my niece. Right now, I must say he never made me take her back. So she was never re-employed by the hotel, but he made it very clear that from then on, I was supposed to call his two representatives in Moscow every time I had a problem. Right. So there was many other stories around that. But just to let you know that in those days, Moscow, very important. If I look now at the general managers of the hotels, they all have a high profile and they should have a high profile but they, because they should be closely connected to the community. In those days, it was a very low profile that was required. There was, uh, you had to do your job and you had to stay very calm and make sure that you did not attract uh, the attention of these people. But anyway, it was very interesting. So after five years in Russia, we joined Orient Express Hotels, Trains and Cruises, which was to be my home for the next 18 years. So Orient Express was an amazing brand. Uh, we had 45 hotels, uh, luxury trains and river cruises. And it was truly a brand that evoked emotions, a brand that inspired dreams. And what was most important, the corporate office of Orient Express, they understood that once you hired the right managers and the right management team, you need to let them do their job. So as a corporate office, rather than controlling everybody, they supported everybody. And what did that mean at the end was that we were able to create a wonderful diverse collection of authentic hotels, trains and river cruises, and they all had a real sense of place. So management was empowered. They created the most memorable experience for their guests in each of their destinations. And our job was simply to ensure that our guests would experience the very best the destinations had to offer inside and outside the hotel. So my first assignment for Orient Express was Bora Bora. So what a natural beauty and paradise. I mean, it was extremely beautiful, but the challenge there was the high expectations of our mainly US and Japanese clientele. The average daily rate was over a thousand dollars a night already then in 97. And every bit of produce was imported. So food and beverage was very expensive as well because everything was flown in from France mainly. So the first year there was fantastic. And then the second year, of course, we had cyclones. We had two cyclones in the span of three weeks. Uh, and when I say cyclone, I mean cyclone, 280 kilometer winds, right? Uh, in the resort, we had 50 overwater bungalows. 
Most of them were absolutely destroyed. Some of them were lifted off their stilts and put in the ocean. We were on a private island and they floated towards the main island of Bora Bora. Were there people in those? Were there people in those apartments? No, 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 because they would have died, right? So we evacuated already 24 hours before the cyclone. We made sure that everybody was out, which was also a challenge because a lot of people from Miami, for example, and they were saying, well, listen, we have cyclones in Miami all the time. Why would we, why would we have to um, why would we have to leave the hotel? Um, and at the end of the day, you had to tell them, listen, this is not just a, a cyclone that you have in Miami. This is 280 kilometer winds, right? And if you stay, there is a serious chance that you're actually going to die, right? So we had to be quite firm with them. But anyway, so two of the bungalows stayed in one piece. They were just lifted off their stilts and in the ocean, they floated towards the main island and they landed on the beach of a hotel of a friend of mine. And he called me the next morning and he said, listen, I have two of your bungalows on my beach. And I said to him, well, that's fantastic because you never had any luxury accommodation. Why don't you keep them? It's not all glamour. It's a lot of hard work. So this is a myth that, you know, this is just hospitality and traveling and living in the best luxury resorts. I mean, working in the best luxury resorts is is like, you know, you're leading a very luxurious life. But it's all it's also a lot of hard work. Well, absolutely. But also, Rinku, that keeps it interesting, right? Um, I think if you if I would have lived for the last 30 years only in luxury resorts, I would be very bored by now. And it doesn't all have to be luxury. Right. Uh, my, my biggest thing always, even now when I go to hotels, is to go to the kitchen, to go to housekeeping, to go to maintenance, to talk to these people and to make sure that they realize that I respect them and that I know that the hotel can't function without them. Right. And give them a feeling of importance and give them self-esteem because that's the key. That is the key of success in every business, I think. Once you work with employees that have self-esteem, uh, you can achieve a lot. Right. Uh, so after Peru in 2005, we came to London and joined the head office. First, I was regional VP there for Australasia and Latin America, and then VP operations for the company. And then the last six years until 2015, I was the chief operating officer at Orient Express. I then joined Small Luxury Hotels, which is an affiliation of 530 hotels, 82 countries. And in 2018, I was lucky enough to be able to basically get the best job in the world, is to join Forbes Travel Guide. Forbes Travel Guide is really a dream job because, yes, you said it at the beginning of the podcast, you said oh, Forbes Travel Guide verifies luxury. But to us, to me and my team, that means... We champion, we support, and we celebrate all those with a passion for extraordinary service. Absolutely. Mr. Boyne, tell me something that if someone wants to become a Forbes inspector, what is the criteria? Okay, the Forbes inspector, to become a Forbes inspector, first you need to apply. And let me tell you the qualities we're looking for. We're looking for people that are intelligent, that have a fantastic memory, because don't forget, if you're a Forbes inspector, we inspect hotels two nights, three days. And there is not one moment during that inspection where you can sit anywhere in the hotel in the view of employees or management. You can sit there, but you cannot make notes. You cannot work on your computer. You cannot work on your iPhone. 
So everything is memories. Not even pretend, not even pretend to? Like a lot of people work on their phones and laptops nowadays sitting in... They do, they do. But there is always the risk that the person behind you or a waiting staff can find out what you're doing, right? So most of it is memory. You then go back to your room and you write your report about your dining experience, your spa experience, your hotel experience, etc. So... Memory is important and incredibly, incredible writing skills, because here is why. So you've mentioned we, do, we have 900 standards between hotels, restaurants and spas. 70, 75% of those standards are about the emotional side of service. That means how do you make your guests feel in your hotel, in your restaurant, in your spa? And to describe emotions, Rinku, is not that simple. We don't allow our inspectors to have any presence on social media because, of course, you can imagine a Forbes inspection is important. It happens once a year. The official inspection happens once a year, totally incognito. The hotel doesn't even know that you're there. And a lot depends on it, right? You can score recommended, you can score four star, or you can, or you can score five star. But it's incredibly important that they stay under the radar. And it's incredibly important that the hotels do not find out who they are. So our inspectors are spread around the whole world. They travel a lot. A lot of them are 220 to 230 days a year on the road. So if you want to be an inspector for Forbes, you need to be ready to do that. And also let's not forget, because a lot of people, when they apply, whenever I do a speech at an event or one of the exhibitions of hospitality, after the speech, I get probably 50 or 60 applications, right? Everybody wants to be an inspector. But then when you, but then when you tell them what is involved, and also not, let's not forget that to fill out an inspection report, takes between 11 and 12 hours of work, right? Whilst you're at Ota. And what happens then? The report is then edited and the report is then sent to the hotels themselves. But it's incredibly detailed. So basically Forbes Travel Guide, as uh, you know, everybody knows that this is an authority on, on luxury travel. So what are the parameters that Forbes takes to verify luxury? And like you just mentioned that there are some 900 objective standards and emotion is one of them. So what, what are these kind of parameters, 900 parameters, if you can just tell us a few that are important for a star rating? Well, what is important, uh, as I've already said, we 75% of our standards are service related, right? Why is that? Because we know that every luxury hotel today has beautiful rooms, beautiful bathrooms, very comfortable beds, great linen. But what's important is service. Service makes the difference between a good and a great and a great hotel, right? So we look for service. And service, for example, we don't care about the size of the hotel. We have five-star Forbes. We have five-star Forbes hotels that have 15 rooms. But at the same time, we have five-star Forbes hotels that have 2,700 rooms. And when I arrived at Forbes three years ago, I did not think that that was possible, right? And let me say, Wynn Las Vegas, which was created by Steve Wynn, who has now retired, they have a service culture that you would not believe. 
Before COVID, they used to have their, in, their hotels inspected by Forbes once every month. Once every month. So does this come as a surprise to them? Is this because since it's all incognito, they don't even know that there's an inspection going on, right? Exactly. It comes as a complete surprise. And normally, there is hotels that have achieved a five-star rating from the first time. So... Because there is simply hotels that are that good that they achieve a five-star rating for the first time, but not many. For most hotels, it is a journey. They commit themselves to extraordinary service and they go through a journey that usually takes two to three years. But I can tell you, Renko, when I have a hotel that has achieved for the first time five-star, especially if they have been trying for two or three years, I always try to personally deliver the news. Obviously, over the last 18 months, it's been difficult. But before that, I used to travel there and sit down with the general manager and the management team and bring the news personally. Now it's mostly done by call. But I have seen a lot of tears. I have seen a lot of people that were so emotional because you, you cannot imagine the hard work that is involved, the commitment, uh, the perseverance, and to create that consistency that every interaction with the guest is of the highest quality. And that's incredibly difficult because you know yourself. You go to luxury hotels, the person that opens the door of the car is fantastic, the doorman is fantastic, but the check-in is not quite what you expected, right? You go to the restaurant, one waiter is phenomenal, the other waiter is not so great. Consistent. Every interaction, it doesn't matter if you meet a maintenance person in the corridor or a housekeeper or a housemaid, they all have to be friendly, they all have to be smiling, they all have to be welcome, right? So that is that is very important. Absolutely. So, so who, according to you, would be a typical Forbes travel guide consumer? Well, that's another thing that goes with, with informality. At the end, uh, you have, of course, high net individuals, but you also have people that treat themselves. And especially after COVID, a lot of people have been basically saving money for a very long time. And a lot of people, some of my friends here in London that are saying, this year, we're going to do the trip of a lifetime. We did not spend money uh, during COVID. We were at home. We have saved a lot of money, and this year we're going to go for a week to Greece, for example, stay at a top hotel and spend £25,000, which before would be unheard of. So I think a typical clientele of a Forbes Travel Guide rated hotel or any luxury hotel is harder to define now than it used to be before COVID. So I am going to now do a quick rapid fire session with you. So which is your best food memory? Uh, best food memory is a very simple hotel in Monza which is basically a restaurant that is based on grandmother's cooking. And not only is the cooking wonderful, when I went there, it's an SLH, it's a small luxury hotel, hotel of the world. The hotel is obviously not that luxurious, but the food and beverage offering is incredible. The owners are about 75 and 77 years old. They're still in the hotel. It's fourth generation. And their sons are already working in the hotel and they're preparing them for the next generation. So it is completely integrated in the community. It's full of local people for lunch and dinner. Uh, I had dinner there with the owners. I spent maybe three hours at the restaurant and I spent about 10 minutes with them because every time a new table comes in or people are leaving the restaurant, they're getting up, they're greeting everybody, they know everybody. It is absolutely amazing. 
And then I had a unbelievable risotto, a risotto with pumpkin, which I have never ever tasted. And then they found out that I was a previously a chef. So then the chef came out. He explained to me for half an hour, step by step, how to do that risotto. And by the time I left the hotel, he gave me a kilo of the best risotto rice. He gave me a liter of the best olive oil in the world. And he gave me all the ingredients. And then the chef made me promise that once I had cooked that risotto at home, I needed to send him a video to make sure that I did do it properly. It was absolutely amazing. It was so much fun. This is this is actually a very, very nice memory that you've shared. So if Philip Boyne was to have a movie made of his life, which movie would that be? Pooh, that is difficult. Huh? Which movie would that be? Uh, it's certainly not going to be a Western. Which movie would that be? I know who my favorite actor is. It's uh, Jack Nicholson. That's, that was the next question I was going to ask you. Who would you pick to play you? He looks like you a bit. That's not the first time I hear that. And obviously one of my all-time favorite movies is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest uh, with Jack Nicholson. And I, I love that movie. Now, I'm not that intense, huh, Rinko? So it shouldn't be in a movie. So who do you admire most? Like from your entire life, your journey, your growing years, who, who is that one person whom you really look up to? I think... I think a person that really inspired me was the founder and the CEO of uh, Orient Express Hotels and Resorts. He was uh, Jim Sherwood, Mr. Jim Sherwood. We always called him Mr. Sherwood. Uh, he was amazing because he had a very clear vision. He was very loyal to his people and obviously they were loyal to him. He created a portfolio of hotels, which now you know that Orient Express was bought by LVMH and that the brand is now called Belmont, which unfortunately doesn't evoke the same emotions as uh, Orient Express, but it is what it is. And I'm sure that um, LVMH over time will do fantastic things with the brand. But Mr. Sherwood was a hero for us. He wouldn't take no for an answer. He was very demanding, but also very fair. And as I say, very loyal to his people. So as long as you worked hard for him, he was incredibly grateful for that. So, yeah, that's my hero. If you were asked to pick two things, what would you put on your bucket list? For the moment, I, I've been playing golf for about 30 years. And thank God I don't spend too much time on it because it's a waste of time. I still love it. So bucket list would be to be a professional golfer. Oh, nice. And the second? And the second would be to be an owner of a luxury group or collection of hotels and try to put my own stamp on what a luxury hotel should be. Sounds amazing. The day that happens, I'm going to be one of the first guests to come. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. We'll look after you. Thank you, Mr. Boyan. You have really, really inspired me. In fact, I'm rather in awe of what you do. And I'm sure the people listening to this podcast from around the world are also equally inspired. So I really thank you so much for joining me on the show. And I want to say thank you to you for actually giving me this honor. No, Rinku. Thank you so much. I really, I really enjoyed it. And call on me anytime. Thank you. Bye bye.